Thank you, Leslie and Paul. And uh, good to see you all here today. It's a significant change in weather from last week. <laughs> I like this better, personally. Well, let's get uh, right to our text. Um, <clears throat> Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we'll pick up the reading in verse 25. Actually, verse tw we'll start in verse 24 through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 20, beginning now at verse 24. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which is the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in amongst, among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch, and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. May God add a special blessing to the reading of his word. And let us just pause for prayer before we begin. Father, we're here in your midst, thanking you for what you've accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, the act of justification, that is to make us, to declare us not guilty from all of the sin that we've committed, whatever we were born with and whatever we would commit, Father, through the blood of Jesus Christ, he's the one that paid it. He's the one that gave us righteousness in its place, the greatest trade the universe has ever known. Father, because of what Christ has done, we're here. And because he rose from the dead, which you guaranteed that what he did was enough. We're here standing on those promises. Father, we'd ask that you would help us to be more sanctified. And that is to be more set apart to pursue personal purity. Father, there's so many things in this parting session that Paul gave to these elders of Ephesus. They're food for us as well. Father, may you take us where you want us to be. Zero in where we are to be. Take your word to the depths of our being. Purify us, correct us, forgive us, encourage us, lift us up, give us wisdom for the days in which we find ourselves living. All of this that we ask, as we receive it, we would want to glorify you for it. There is nothing within us 
the power is from you. We'll ask that the Holy Spirit would exclusively be our teacher today of the word, and you take it where it needs to go. Examine us, bring to light what needs to come to light in our own hearts. And then, Father, bring us forward one step at a time, honoring you. These things we ask in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, once again, let's find ourselves contextually, uh, geographically. Laramie, if you'll uh, please put that map on the, on the wall. We know that Paul is, if you will, on his return, the return part of his trip. He's, he's been uh, on his third journey. <clears throat> he had actually wanted to go home from Corinth. He wanted to go straight into Jerusalem and get there for Passover. It was a time of which he wanted to bring all the offerings, the ones that, again, I, I, can't, I keep mentioning every time that we're together here in this last sessions, but think of it, he's taken offerings from literally all around the world to come to the beginning of the church, to show the unity, to show the fact that we're all together in this. Didn't matter color, there was no racism, and there was a lot of racism. Jews and Gentiles, the division, that was unimaginable for me to tell you even that, and yet... That was the thing of Paul bringing and uniting, bringing there's one body in, one, in, in, in Christ with one spirit. That's the message. Uh, however, uh, the Jews were going to kill him. And using a fair bit of wisdom, uh, if you're on a ship from here going to Jerusalem, it's a fairly likely po a high pop possibility that you would be either thrown overboard, killed, and then thrown overboard. Paul said, hmm, I'll take a different ship. And, and part of it was probably that ship live, leaving from Greece, more than likely, was carrying Jews to go back to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they're wanting to kill the one that was lifting up Jesus Christ. <laughs> Things remain the same, don't they? They remain the same. However, God used it as a mighty, a mighty tool, so he just backtracked. And he came all the way around, and we talked about even there's a young man in the scriptures called Eutychus that fell out of a third-story window that was dead, that if Paul would have had the opportunity to go straight into Jerusalem and meet at the Passover, that would have never happened. There would have been a whole lot of people that would not have had that last occurrence to have visited with Paul. There would have been a lot of people that probably would not have gotten saved. All of that to say, in your life today, in the last week, the last two weeks, the last 10 years, the last however many years, literally God has directed your pathway to bring you in contact, potentially, with the gospel that their life will bring them closer to Jesus Christ. That's pretty exciting to me. And all through the book of Acts, it's amazing to see the journeys that Paul has taken, that it's been led by the Spirit and stopped by the Spirit. You know, remember on, on one of the journeys he wanted to go into eight? No, it wasn't allowed. But he could go into Macedonia. All of that is directed by God. The book, if you want to read a book in the Bible today, it would take you just this afternoon, uh, just do that. It's on, your, it's on your assignment list. It's a little book of which God's name is not mentioned one single time, even though it's one of the 66 books that is within this Bible. There's one book that never mentions God's name. And yet, when you peel that book apart and you get to the end, you say, God was everywhere. And it's just like us here today. Literally, and we're going to use God's name today, but there's places that God's name is not mentioned of which God is so incredibly involved in our world. And that little book, those of you that may not know, is the little book of Esther. And if you don't see God in that book when you're done reading it, come and talk to me. We'll visit more. That's the providence of God. Well, here we are. 
cutting back through, he's a uh, member of Troas. That's where that long extended Sunday evening service turning into Monday morning dawn. <laughs> you think I'm a long-winded guy. Uh, they woke up at dawn, and the rest of the guys take off from Troas, and they're going to go to Asos, which is about 30 miles by sea. Paul says, no, 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 you guys go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and walk with these people that we were meeting with last night at Troas, because I wasn't done. <laughs> they want more. So he walks, after all of that long night, to Asos. He gets on the ship, and then they go to Mytilene, Chios, Samos, and then there's this town called Miletus. Miletus is about 30 miles from Ephesus. The ship apparently was trading, changing cargo or whatever. We don't know, but there was a, there was a, it was, what, what is, a delay. I'll just say it that way. Probably two to three days. But rather than Paul going to Ephesus, he sends a messenger to Ephesus to have the elders to come to visit him before he continues on his journey. Paul never wasted time or opportunities. We need to think the same way. Don't waste time or opportunities. He used the time to, to reach out to those. Now, it's interesting. It, they came immediately, and here they are. They've come from Ephesus to Miletus. Last week, no, it wasn't last week, was it? We had, <laughs> we had sort of a break. But the week before, we actually were talking about the fact of how Paul was addressing these elders. This was like a church leadership seminar, if you will. And he talked about how Serving God was one dimension of his ministry. Teaching the church was a second dimension. Evangelizing the lost was a third dimension. And then fourthly was the sense of his sacrifice, his selflessness. Okay? Those should have been notes that probably you would have gathered a couple of weeks ago. And now he gets personal, if you will. He's zoning in on the teaching portion of it. I'm, I'm sorry, on the, on the church part of that. These are men that he has appointed. And the longest place that Paul ever taught, that ever preached, was at Ephesus. That's maybe why, I don't know, I don't know, but if I was going to, and I should not do this, but I'm sharing with you maybe my favorite of Paul's letters. Because it's, a, it, it's, it's touched me in more ways, and people, uh, if you remember even, there was a man that was killed, uh, a friend of mine in, in Oregon. Remember that? Uh, it's been several years ago now, um, in a side-by-side in a -side rollover. And the night before he was killed, uh, it was actually, he called me back, and there was a few nights before that, he, we had just talked, and we're in the Red Angus business together, we're, but, but pretty soon we're talking about the Bible. And I told him, I said, I'll tell you what, I, there's a podcast you need to listen to. I think it would, it would, so he calls back literally the night before he is killed. I don't know that. He doesn't know that. And it was about Ephesians. It was in Ephesians chapter 3. And he was just so on fire. I'd never, and I've known him for a lot of years, never seen him that sky high spiritually. It was amazing. Okay? And we got all done. And I said, this is really cool what's happened here. My, my, heart, is, my heart is lifted. Literally, God has lifted both of our hearts through the word of God. And that's Ephesians. But I said, by the way, you listened to the wrong one. <laughs> and he said, what? What? I said, no, no, it's, you didn't listen to the wrong one. You actually listened to exactly what God wanted you to do. But here's what I really wanted you to do. And he said, this is, what, this is the last words I had him speak to me on the phone. Larry, I got to get up at 4 o'clock, go to Middle Fork. I will call you tomorrow night. I'll be listening it on the way in. And the next news I got was that Josh had changed places. He's in heaven. But Ephesians is so dear to me. And that's, I can't imagine that Ephesians, the place that Paul preached the longest, the place that Paul was the dearest, 
the place that literally, this is the only time we know of that he would have gathered those church elders after three years of having designated them as being leaders in that church to speak to them so personally and said right out of the box, we read it in verse 25, this is the last time I'm going to see you. So think of that. This is time to, I'm, I can't imagine even Paul as he's waiting for those elders to come, to come the 30 miles. What am I going to tell them? These are my last words to them. This is the last, and you know, again, cell phones, not so much. <laughs> Letters, yes, but it's different, isn't it? This was the last face to, and it was the last face to face. The Holy Spirit literally let Paul know that this was, in fact, the last time they would see. What would he say? Them having heard this, what, can you imagine how attentive they would have been? It's just like us today. These are lessons for us as well. What are we as leaders in the church? Now, what I would say this, now this is, this is uh, Paul the Apostle speaking to elders within the church, okay, of a, of a church that is on fire for Jesus Christ. Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. These lessons are directly for church leadership, but I don't want you to slip aside and fall through the cracks because each and every one of you is a leader of someone, someplace, somehow. There are leaders of families. Husbands are leaders of their families. Mothers are leading their children in the pathway through education and just letting them grow and see. In fact, the character of a child oftentimes comes more from the mother than anyone else because they are the ones that are surrounding them with love and comfort and care and points them to Jesus Christ. Okay? Not to say the father's, father leads the family. It's very clear. Ephesians, guess where we find that? Ephesians. One of my favorite verses about marriage is in Ephesians. So maybe we go there in a moment. I was thinking, a, a man called me this week and asked that, would I be interested, not interested, he said, would you meet with myself and my wife for marriage counseling? And I said, be glad to. What am I going to do? Is there anything I'm going to add? No, the word of God will. I'm going to leave it there. And there's a verse in there, and we'll maybe get to it today, that literally takes marriage and just puts it in such an encapsulated form that is so clear, so direct, and again, it's in Ephesians. All based on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ did for us. These are the men that he's talking to. These are the men, literally, that will be his last time together. What will they hear? What will they listen to? But it's also leadership is a thing that has gone away. Uh, government leadership today. Uh, that, that, I'm actually preparing a message, maybe two, for where we are in 2024, for how we, uh, how we would look at government presently. I'm preparing that. Um, there's many that will take, and I don't want to get too far offline, but I want you to be thinking about, be praying about this, because we're at a very different crossroads of, what do we say, I'm going to just put quotes around government right now, but the, the passage we'll be looking at in the future, and not very far, because it's, it's just, it's really prompting in my mind, of what do we do? I mean, we have levels of evil that is unprecedented, at least to the magnitude we see today, and Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, but we're going to hold those all together. That's going to be in the future. We're come with that. But how do we view government? We have a lack of leadership in government. We'll just, we're going to leave that for there right now, okay? Is it sanctioned by God? Yes, provided that there are some qualifications that are met. A preface to that is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 12. Let's go there for a moment. It actually sets us up for how God sees those in, in authority. As you're thinking about that, uh, let's just go. Where did I tell you to go? Uh, there we go, Proverbs 16, 12. Let's hope it's right. Let's see if it makes any sense. Proverbs 16, 12. Uh, yeah, there it is, uh, Proverbs 16, 12. It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. Okay? 
Uh, the whole sense of government is designed around the fact of having leadership that is based on righteousness. Uh, if you even think back into the, remember when Adam and Eve, they ate of which tree? They did not eat of the tree of life, thankfully, because you know what? We would be locked in forever, eternally into a pathway of sin that we would, we would be dead spiritually forever. That's why, literally, they were kicked out of the garden. An angel with a sword of fire would not allow anyone in. For our sake, there was grace even at that level, that they could not partake of the tree of life. Now, we will, in heaven, partake of that same tree of life. It shows up again, and imagine that, the last part of the Revelation. But here we are. What tree did they eat of? Knowledge of good and evil. Now, think about that for a second. Even an atheist today, someone that would, would, would stand up here, and if he was allowed the, the audience to literally take me on and say, there is no God, you can't prove there's a God, he would take that offense. He would take that stance. He himself then would say that he or she is God. I don't want to be uh, sexist. There's men and women that are both claiming to be atheists, which is the most arrogant position I can think of. For you to think that you've traversed the entire universe, of which you don't even know the confines of, to state clearly and definitively there is no God is the most arrogant statement I could possibly imagine. But if they take that position, one thing that's interesting, they all want to be treated fairly. Right? They don't want to be robbed. They don't want to be killed. They don't want to be raped. They don't want to, right? Where does that come from? The tree of good and evil. There's something that's placed within us from God that we know the difference between right and wrong in its, in its basic tenets. Even a child, a young child knows when they're wrong. They're born very selfish little demons, aren't they? And I'm saying that with a great deal of love because I've got seven of those sweeties, right? But it's amazing at two and younger, they're vicious little buggers. <laughs> And it's all built, the little kids are smiling back there. That's funny, you should watch. It's hilarious. She just smiled when I said that. Yeah, I am, aren't I? At any rate, at any rate, and Romans chapter 5, verse 12 speaks of it. It comes from within. It's passed on. It's in our DNA. But there's, a, there's an interesting part. If there was no God and there was no nothing of anything, then why doesn't everybody do whatever they want to do? Including killing, raping, pillaging. I remember a conversation in a book, wasn't one I had, that uh, Josh McDowell had with a history teacher about right and wrong and God and no God. And their perspective was, there is no God. So what is right? Well, the most powerful. Josh quickly jumped on and said, so if Hitler would have won the war, then he would have been right. Well, no, he said, you've just declared to me that might makes right. And that's pretty much how our world runs. But there's something even in that. See, that history teacher backed up and said, wait a minute. That isn't right. Correct? There's something that's within us that even that. So even government at its most basis level. Now, again, God is trusting leadership. And we just read it in Proverbs. This, are you going into government? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bait you and then I'm going to leave, okay? But it, it, it's interesting that God wants you, wants even human government to be leading people in righteousness. They may not even fully anticipate what that means, but there's a part of us, just humanness, that declares the sense of rightness, of ethics in a right way. You can tell even someone that's the most corrupt individual, they know when they've done wrong. 
They may not care, but they know when they've done wrong. That's something that God has designed. Okay? So within government, leadership from God is, is it, that's, a, that's, a, that's a level that is built on the importance of authority that is right. But let's leave that aside for right now. On the other side of the spectrum, the other thing that God orchestrated and constituted as being a beginning is the family. Leadership within a family. Again, the leadership within a family today, societally across our world, is at an all-time low. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Again, I'm sorry I didn't pull the, the recent statistics, but those men, I'm going to say mostly men, I don't have the women's stats, but it would be probably somewhat similar, is men that are incarcerated, then the coming from a broken home is an alarmingly high rate, and I'm talking in the higher 80 percentiles, they came from a single parent home. Okay? Is there something to be said? Well, of course there is. That's not how God designed it. Now, keep in mind, Satan is trying to bore through or to weasel his way in all three of family, church, and government to destroy it and to make everything less than what God designed. Remember, humans were made in the likeness of God. He made male and female, period. And that's the way God made it. And he designed leadership and role models for each one of those. Now today, we're going to take and put our, our branches or our sides around the church leadership. This is designed strictly for this. But, I, I, but I, I mean, not strictly. This is designed for the conversation we find ourselves involved in. But I want you to keep your ears on and listen carefully because it's not just about church leadership because it's amazing how these things will carry over into other areas. Okay, Leadership is, if there's something we need today, it is leadership. Now, just a few statements about that, or maybe I'll hear from you guys as well. When I say leadership, what do you think of? Wow, it is really an absent thought, isn't it? We don't even know what it is. Leadership. Setting a direction. Setting a direction. That's actually really good. I like that. I like that. Setting a, setting a direction. Okay. Now, in the world, societally leadership, if you're a CEO of a very prominent company or whatever, how is that direction set? Excuse me? That drives, that drives almost everything, doesn't it, in the world? It does. And, and so, in other words, it seems to me a little bit amazing. Now, it very seems almost, and I, this is brand new. I, I've not studied any of this. So we're just going. We pray that the Holy Spirit would take us where he wants us to be. Okay? That's, that's how I approach this. But one of the things that, stri- that sticks out to me is Jesus Christ is the leader of the church, correct? What would be profitable to Jesus Christ? To the church. That's his organization. You call which, and I'm saying organization loosely. It's not an organization in the sense of uh, not physicality. It's, it's life. It's living. It's made up of you that have trusted Christ. That's the church. What would be profitable? Putting quotes around profitable. What makes the church profitable? What would make Jesus Christ say, that's awesome. That's what I want the church to look like. Is it more money? Sharing the, sharing the message, the gospel, with the lost. In fact, that's what Paul has just said just previously in these verses. Evangelistically, he has shared the gospel with the world. Bared his heart. It's an important concept, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, it's interesting. How much money did Jesus make? Didn't have a house. Didn't have a car. Didn't have... You say, well, he didn't know. Well, of course not. He didn't have a horse. He didn't have a donkey. They, that was a borrowed. Remember that? That was set up for our, for our good. Wasn't so, why don't you bring me the, no, 
He said, go to town and we'll borrow one. Tell that guy what I want to do with it. He had nothing. And yet, it's the only man ever, and I'm saying man, God, ever that's divided time. If you're an atheist, you have to admit the fact that there is before Christ and after Christ. No one else has ever gotten that done. Why? Because he was God. That CEO that we just, we let him park for a moment. The one thing that does seem enormous to me is the one that is of the most, and I, you can go and you can do your own Googling, but the CEO of a large bank makes more money than he should, or she. In other words, the profitability could even be better if they'd actually be reasonable about what they're expecting. So my point in this is most of the time today in the world system, leadership is not driven by example. It is driven by force. You do what I say. Right? And if you don't, I have more power than you, and you're fired. That works at almost every single level. Schools. Now, here's where it gets interesting, and this is where I may be meddling. It's so easy because that's the humanist approach. Jesus Christ, he floored the disciples on the night that he had their last communion, the last supper together, when he, the master, the rabbi, the teacher, I'm using their terms, the commander-in-chief, they didn't say that, but I'm saying it, and he got down to wash your feet. Whoops. When's the last time you could have imagined a CEO of a company getting on his knees and washing the feet of someone? Wrongo. You can't even take that in. I'm above that. No, no. That's not what leadership is in Christ's church. Jesus said, I am the servant of all. Mark 10, 45. And that's literally what he's asking us to do as well, to be servants. Because you'll make makes the most impact when you are by example leading. Now, the clearest definition of a, of a, a, a clearest definition of, a, of leader is this. There's people following. <laughs> if you don't have anybody following, you're not a leader. It's that simple. What's the best way to be to lead is by example. I, I can't think of anything better. That's how Jesus led. He didn't, he didn't go out and, and have these attendance meetings. He didn't have this, you know, come. No, he just did what he did. When you could do things that Jesus did, you would follow that, right? When we do things through the power of Christ, it's just automatically that people will follow. But leadership in the family even, it's, I'm going to get back, it's where I'm meddling now, this is a moment I'm going to be meddling, is it's too often for parents, moms and dads, and I would have to say, I'm thinking about my past, that it would be easier for me to say, don't do that. Why? Because I said so. <laughs> and a child, or anyone in the sense of downline, shall we say, in the sense of authority, would, well, tell me why that would not be. And there's, if you're two, you don't need to know why, okay? Honestly, you need to, they, need to, they just need to do that, right? Because you've got a sense situation of breaking that will. And each of you could probably tell a story as parents, we had, I had one child in my five that was particularly challenging at a very young age to break that will. It was amazing, amazing. I'm still amazed by it. I was actually, are you kidding me? But you know what? You've got to get that taken care of. But at some point, 
I don't know where that's at exactly, but when that child knows the difference between right and wrong and you tell them not to do something, I think it's imperative for you to say, we don't do that because this is why. This is what, and hopefully it's all based on not tradition, but the word of God. Don't get into traditions. Well, we just don't do that. Why not? Ah, uh, don't do it. <laughs> See, we need to stand firm on why we know what we're not doing or doing for that matter. Why do you go to church? Why don't you, you see, all of those things, they need to be based on the Word of God. And by example, parents that parent by example have a much louder platform than those that lead by force. In fact, a lot of times by force, it's easy for that child to rebel against that. And not even knowing why. They're just going to be in charge, right? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of really, really godly parents that some of the kids just haven't necessarily turned out. But before you condemn yourself, I'm going to go to the greatest father of all time who had a chosen family, and they literally did it wrong every time, and that's the nation of Israel with God being the father. He has granted the ability, the freedom to choose. There is a point which you must turn that over. But leading by example is what Paul is all about here. Leading by example. That's what we need in our nation today. From family to church to government. So let's dig into it. He's, he's gathered around these, these precious ones, these ones that have come 30 miles. And the first thing he does is he, he says in verse 25, Behold, I know you all among whom I have gone preaching. The kingdom of God shall see my face no more. This is the last time we're going to see each other. Uh, because of that, I take you to record this day that I am pure of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. In other words, there's Jew, Gentile, there's no one that can, that literally my blood would, their blood would be on my head. In other words, I have shared the gospel of Christ everywhere I've been. I've told them the good news. I've given them the grace of God. Now, that's a great thing for us to think about as well. How often do we maybe fail doing that? And again, I'm not talking about, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, but it's amazing. Paul, for example, could say, I live the high road. I have no one's, no one am I guilty of by not sharing the gospel. But now watch what he says next. He says, this is the word we're going to start. This is, this is like leadership 101 with church elders. Where do we start? Now, you're already reading ahead. You shouldn't do that, but you did. That's okay. So what would be the first thing the teacher at the head of the class in talking about church leadership, what would he say? What would he or she say? What would, what would he say? Ah, boy, I tell you what, you've got you've to go ahead and get all of the hierarchy figured out. You've got to get the right people in the right places. You've got to have the right message. You've got to do it the right way. You've got to make sure that you've got it in the right manner. No, no. Do you know what he, he started? And this is absolutely true of Christianity. Take heed to yourself. Start at home base. Start at home base. Now, he's speaking to elders. So if we take our Bibles and we turn to Titus chapter 1, we'll find that there are some qualifications that, again, Paul would have written to his dear friend and one that would have been a church planter or at least a church administrator, a man by the name of Titus. And he's telling him in verse 5 of chapter 1, For this cause left I you in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. Uh, Titus, I want you to appoint elders, just like I did in Ephesus, essentially. And now he's going to give you qualifications. 
If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, or lover of money, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, and temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath taught, that he may be able to be by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayer. And we all said, there's no one qualified. <laughs> Doesn't that just overwhelm you? But there's actually one word there that literally covers almost all of it. It's the first one. I want to talk to you about the word to be blameless. You find it in the other passages as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he gives almost the same level. And guess which one they started with exactly? Blameless. Tell me what blameless is. What does blameless look like? What is it, what is it to be blameless? Christ-like? Innocent. Basically, to be non-accused. There's no one that can bring something in honesty and put blame on to accuse you of some wrongdoing. Whoa. That literally covers it all. Uh, we'll get into kind of some, we're not going to do it today, but you can get out, kind of out of bounds in, in a one woman man or, you know, and there's thought, is it one woman at a time? Is it to never been divorced? I'll just say it this way. If you're blameless... Non, you just can't accuse someone. That means you are completely, madly in love with that woman and not looking around. That's blameless. There's, there's nothing that you can bring against this guy. Isn't that awesome? Now, unfortunately, in our world today, you make up stuff. There was an old man, an old man, an old pastor by the name of J. Vernon McGee. Southern California, I don't know, is he still on the radio? I mean, he, he, he would go through the, through the Bible in like five years or seven years, I forget which, and he would literally, and I mean, go from one end of it to the other end of it, right? And there was a time in my, he was just a little too, I couldn't really take his voice, right? But, uh, and you're laughing because like, you must have been right there with me. It was just like, ah, just say it, have, have someone else say that, because he was spot on doctrinally, he was, he was great, right? And then it was like, there's a lot of wisdom here, and I would listen. And I haven't heard him for a long time now. But I remember him stating in one of the sessions I was listening to that in Southern California, he had been accused of something. And it, I mean, it was, I don't remember what it was about, but it was destroying him. And he called a good friend of his, a good pastor friend, and he said, I don't know what to do. And this guy listened for quite a while. And he says, is it true? Well, of course it's not. He said, then what are you concerned about it for? That's God's business. Let him work it out with whoever's saying that. You just go about being blameless. That's what blameless is. You don't worry about the stuff that has anything to do with lies or contortion or whatever. You just keep right on living as righteously and as personally and as close as you can yielding to God. That literally in one word would describe what an elder would look like in a church setting. And... I can't think it would really work really good as a father or a mom or a government. Do you see where I'm going with this? See, leadership from God's perspective is very clear. We're talking about church leadership, but you know what? It fits in almost every single case. To be blameless. To be non-accused. Let's go to uh, 1, Pete, 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's take a look at this. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. 
he says the same thing to his, this young man. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt save thyself and them that hear thee. Pay attention to yourself first. Guard yourselves. Self-examination. Uh, there's, a, there's a proverb, probably one of my favorite verses. I'm going to share with it now because it fits right here. It's a sense of guarding. Go to uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. This is uh, for, for young people particularly. Uh, you know, teenagers, those that are in, uh, which I would say just crossroads of making decisions that will be affected, even though you don't think about it at the age of which you are. These, these are time frames in which it's so important to guard your heart. Uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 in the King James says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Guard your heart. Isn't that good? That's so good. In fact, if I see something coming, I want to be careful about how that's received. What is, wh- where is that coming from? Where is it going? What, what will happen? See, those are questions that really literally allow us to take guard. It's from the word of God. Guard your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. The other thing is, as we think about personal purity, that's really what we're talking about, is you're guarding your heart, guarding yourselves, looking at your relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a part of forsaking sin. We leave sin behind. Let's go to Romans chapter 6 for a moment. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. Again, I I am not here to... uh, I want to say. We're, we're not perfect, okay? We're not perfect. Because that's one of the things that Satan wants to do, is if, if you do sin, and by the way, you have or will, if you say you won't, uh, we, we need to talk long, long time. We've we got to get through that, right? But what Satan wants is for you to have, to appear to be, or at least seem to be, disqualified in any sense of the word spiritually. That's where he wants you. Because someone that feels disqualified doesn't do anything, Great! That's what Satan wants. So wouldn't you see him coming and trying to mull his way into all of these potential leadership roles at whatever level? That's what he does. In fact, uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, he's accuser of brethren. He's right now, if I get the Bible right, he's right now accusing those that have sinned before God the Father. And Jesus is where, where is he sitting? He's at the right hand. What's he doing? He's your defense attorney. He's better than Matlock ever was. He's amazing. And you know what he costs? In the sense of money, nothing, but he wants everything from you. He wants you to give you, he wants everything of you. Yield is the word. Yield. That's the word we're going to start to find right here, okay? But when you can put Satan and say, and you know what Jesus is? I paid for that. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you need to get to know Jesus before he's your defense attorney. You need to learn and see him as your savior. Because without him as your savior, he's not your defense attorney. In fact, that means that you're going to go straight before the face of God at the end, and you're going to say, I did it my way. <laughs> That's what you're saying. And God says, depart. But if you've trusted Christ as savior, guess what? You've got the greatest defense attorney ever, and he's right there with you. And he paid for your sin with his blood, using the terminology from the Bible. That's fantastic. I want to take, where do I have you right now? Okay, we've got to finish this. But there's, I, want to, I want to go to Micah, though. This is a verse that you probably don't know about. Just, just hold me. No, don't go there right now. But this is something that should cheer you up. 
Because when you fall, the key is, is get back up. That's what a Christian does. Did you, I'm going to say it again. When you fall, a Christian gets back up. That's the Holy Spirit within you, driving you back up. Okay? So let's go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and let's start in verse 11. Now watch where he starts. This is Paul writing to the church at, at Rome. Likewise reckon, or consider, think, make it true, you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. In other words, get the right thinking but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is someone that has trusted Christ as Savior. No longer are you, you're, you're, you're not dead in sin, you're dead to sin. Think of that. Keep going. Let not sin therefore reign in the sense of power in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lesser of. Neither yield you, your members, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. Now that's, that's a lot of stuff going on, but literally the word that always sticks out to me there is yield. Now, it's not just like you see a, a sign that says yield. In other words, like back off, look around, wait. The word that's used in the scriptures as being yield is to, be a, to come right beside, to be part of. So think of that now. Don't be part of sin, but be part of God. That makes it different, doesn't it? Now, even, and we're going to close this session with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But what it says is to present your bodies. That's the same word as yield. Presenting. Who do you present your life to? Now, given you just let things roll and you don't take a position on anything, you don't, guess what happens? The world will suck you in. You'll be conformed to the world. You won't be transformed. You'll be conformed. You'll be just taken to this mold and just made that way. That's the way the world works. Even you just pick up the news and by the time you're, oh, Really? And you keep reading that news, and it's amazing. It becomes just commonplace. If you took the, and I, this is just thinking out loud, if you would take news that you would read 20 years ago, today, it wouldn't even phase you. A television program 20 years ago that you would have, my mother, she, she, she would say, turn that thrash off. I don't know what thrash was, but you knew, turn it off, right? Today, you wouldn't even turn it on. Correct? That's what happens with the world system. It molds you into its mold and does not allow you to get the best of it because you've presented yourself. You're right alongside of it. David Jeremiah tells a story of a man that really struggled with pornography. And he said, well, let's just walk, let's just, let's just walk through what does your day look like? Well, I go to work. And when I go home, he said, well, which way do you go home? Well, I go buy a, an adult bookstore. Boom. I mean, that, right? There's, there's, there's triggers. There was triggers. So David Jeremiah just simply said, go a different way home. Well, it's not the shortest. He said, doesn't matter. <laughs> go another way. See, that's how we need to live our lives. When you know where your triggers are, and you all have different ones. I have mine. You have yours. There are things that set you off, and God, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, with every temptation, I'm going to make a way for you to escape, right? That's how he helps you. You start to see those tricks. Guess what? Steer away. 
you know, the last thing you'd probably want to do if you're an alcoholic is maybe go buy three or four bars. Just thinking, right? What's that? Going by is better than But but that's the problem, isn't it? The sense of compromise. If you walk by them, you slow down. I'm I'm assuming. It's amazing, isn't it? I even look at our, our little towns around here. There's, there's not three grocery stores. There's not three banks. Even the towns have 20 people in the bar. Absolutely. I'm a little there town. are more churches than bars in our community, which is a good thing. Okay, and I'm going to follow that up with, is the word of God being presented in all of the churches? That's right. Now, that's what God wants. That's what God wants. Now, actually, uh, was it Chuck Swindoll? Because this is where the church fails. Uh, I may not get this exactly right, but I'll have the principle behind it. There was a man that got saved by Chuck Swindoll, and he came to him one day and said, Chuck, I just give up. I, I just give up. When I went to the bar, I could talk freely and openly with those people. And I'm in church, and I can't do that. And Chuck said, why not, right? Not to him, to, to us. Why not? Why, don't we be, why can't we bear up one another's burdens? Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, right? Isn't that what we're here for? <clears throat> That's literally, you know what? And I've got friends that are desperate alcoholics. And that's their go-to source to hide and to release sorrow. And it's a one-way street, and it's taking you nowhere but down. But at the same time, it's one at a time, one day at a time. And pretty soon, they can't get away from it. That's the thing that I tell young men and women today, is the fact, do not underestimate the power of sin. It will take you further, keep you longer, and hold you tighter than you could have possibly imagined. That's what sin does. This was a rabbit trail now. How did we get ourselves into that one? Which, which verse was it? Where did we get there? Oh, yielding. Yielding, right. What do you associate with? Where do you spend your time? What is your life made up? I, I asked a question. I was, just, I was in the shower today, and I, I was say, should I ask, what's, what's, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to ask? One of the questions that came up, what will you die for? It's a good question. And then it came back to me to say, whatever you die for is what you live for. Take an atheist. He's not going to die for anybody. Why? Because he lives for himself. Isn't that true? I wonder if, if, if the Apostle Paul would I'm sure he remembered the situation with Stephen the rest of his life. Why Stephen died? That's the one thing. Now here's, here's the other thing. I, I had a young man. That, that, let's, that's really good. Because one of the things that's happened is you mature in Christ. And you begin to see, not just sin, but you see the personality the personness, the tightness, the closeness of how you were involved in sin. It hurts more because it hurts Jesus. And you start to respect and see the love that he shared for you, right? I had a young man that said, Larry, I'm just, I'm depressed. I mean, I just see all this stuff I do wrong. I said, first of all, stop for just a second. Just stop for a second. Thank God that you see it that way. Why? <laughs> because you are starting to see the tenderness and the intimacy that you have with the Father. Because the closer you are to him, 
the louder and the more evil sin looked. The further you're away from God, sin takes on a very vague and a tainted picture. The closer you get to God, the brighter he becomes and the more you want to stay away from sin. That's why, as Paul just said, I can't imagine later in Paul's life. And that's why Romans chapter 7 is what it is. That's Paul himself speaking about his life. That's another assignment, Romans chapter 7. Just dial in about verse 25 and read it. I do what I don't want to do. I can't do what I want to do. I mean, it's just frustrating. And I'm saying, that's what the apostle, now there's those, there are the liberal uh, theologians that have said, oh, that's just someone that hasn't come to Christ. Oh, yes, it is someone that comes to Christ. It's I. It's written by Paul himself. He's frustrated. Have you been frustrated by your sin? Of course you have. Praise God for that. That means at least he's turned your box on, turned your lights on. And that young man, I said, now, here's what you want to do now. I said, once, when God is pressing on you, he's going to give you the power to overcome that. But if you didn't know about it, if it didn't bother you, you aren't even a square one. You need to praise God that he's literally lit that light up. Same with me, right? Sin to me is louder than it's ever been. It bugs me more than it's ever bugged me. That's something we need to praise God for. There are men and women that don't know Jesus Christ. They couldn't even tell you that they're sin. That's just a word that Christians use, right? They don't see it. They can't even see it. They're totally dead to life. That sounded weird, but that's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. Imagine Ephesians again. So where are we presenting ourselves? But let's say we fall. We fail. I wanted to take you to Micah. This may be a new verse for you. Uh, verses. Let's go to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Um, and then, if I was going to say Micah, do you have a favorite verse in Micah? Some of you might say, yeah, that's right. So let's start with that one. Micah chapter 6. Let's go there. Micah chapter 6. Not the easiest book to find. Look at this. I had my... Uh, my little deal like this was in where I was looking, but I, of course I didn't know I was there, so I was wandering around. Micah chapter 6, let's look at verses 6 through 8. Israel is wondering what they should do. You know, why, what, what, what are we doing wrong? Wherewith shall I, verse 6, chapter 6, shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? So I give my firstborn of my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. In other words, that's what the sacrificial system was done. And too oftentimes, and don't, don't make light of this because it's actually very easy. How many people actually go through the door of a church to sit down just because they think that's going to make them more loved by God? They're going to go to church more. That's the same as these guys. Well, I should probably, if I'm bringing one ram, I should bring ten. Or 500. What does God want to be happy? 1,000? See, that's what, he's, what they're saying. Should I go to church 100 times a year or 200 times a year? And the people that are going on Easter and Christmas, they've missed the reason that there's even church at all, right? But here's the answer. This is the answer. Verse 8. He has showed the old man. He's, God has showed you what is good. This is what he wants. This is what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. If there's something that's missing in our government level right now, it is justice. There is no justice. Because in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Woe unto them that say evil is good and good is evil. Right now, our government, 
And I can speak for the United States because we have a constitution that is not inspired by God, but was inspired from the sense of those men that prayed to a God to give them a document to lead a country of which they were in rebellion against not being able to worship their God freely. I think the Constitution of the United States of America is amazing. And within that confine allows the Constitution to prepare and ward itself against those that would take offense to doing what is right. Right now, as that verse in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe unto them that say evil is good and good is evil. That is what our government and most governments in the world right now is saying is right. You will be punished for doing right and liberated for doing what's wrong. Again, another session. But did you see the first thing God wanted was justice? Still wants it. Still wants it. But let's say that you failed. And those, at that point, I wondered what the people said. Whoa, that has nothing to do with rams or lambs. That's an internal thing. Take a look now in chapter 7. These are the verses you may not have been aware of. Chapter 7 of Micah. And there's a response here that we can personalize. Verse 8. Actually, starting in verse 7. Therefore, I will look... Unto the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me, he will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness." What does a Christian do? They get back up. They keep moving. They keep going. They go towards the light. And you know who gives you the power to do that? Jesus Christ. Those verses encourage me. Because will you fail? Yes. Can you fail? Yes. Should you fail? No. Jesus Christ has given you every reason, all the power in the world. You should never fail. But when you do, he's right there. Let's get up. Let's go. What are you doing, buddy? Satan's trying to push you down. How many people are not exercising their spiritual gifts because of a spiritual failure? Happens a lot. I'm not worthy. I'm not qualified. You're God's property. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you've trusted Christ as Savior... He owns you. Just come back to him. Isn't that what Christianity is? And again, you, if there's anything for you to thank, for, thank God for today, it's the fact that you're not an angel. And you say, what? <laughs> God created the angels, I think, well before the, the creation, according to Job chapter 38. It says that the angels were there praising God during the creation. How many chances do they have to get it wrong? I'm sorry, to get it right. One time. Lucifer spun his lie, spun a game, and they had one chance to choose. The Bible says one-third fell away. There was not ever another opportunity for them to get it right. Are we blessed? If you have one breath left in you and you submitted to Jesus Christ, 
your life, what's left of it. And you trust him with it. You are his. That's grace. That's grace. I remember a man in a hospital, comatose. I spoke to him as if he wasn't. In fact, I called him by name. I said, I'm here because you have not much time left. I know you can hear me. And I've never, ever told you a lie. Right now, I need you to know absolutely the truth, that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And if you haven't taken him as your savior, right now you still have the opportunity. You still have that opportunity. And I shared a few more things. And his wife called me after I came home and she said, it's, it's amazing. His, his breathing, and he was pretty, you know, if you've been there at the end of life, it's pretty, and not to say that has anything with salvation, but in this case, I think this man was waiting, just looking for something to know for sure. Maybe it was just that. He said, he's just, he's completely calm. Completely calm. That's what God does for us. That should be what he does for us as we're living vibrantly. We should be at ease. If there's no peace in your life, get closer. Yield yourselves closer to him. Look inside first. That's what Paul is saying to these elders. Last time I've ever seen him, he said, take heed to yourselves. It's a very short four words, but I tell you what, the power in it is amazing. It's packed full. It's just what he told Timothy, too. But let's keep moving. I can't believe our time is rolling. Whew. Let's go back to our text, which you're trying to say. Where is our text today? Uh, it's back in Acts. It's Acts chapter 20. And he says, uh, oops, I'm in 19. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock. Okay? Not only, guys, you have to guard yourselves. You're going to have to look internally. You're going to have to self-examine yourself. Take care of your own personal purity. But then it's to the flock. What's the flock? What is the flock? What, what the, the church going to have a group of sheep around? Actually, yes. Yeah. A church is a bunch of sheep, right? Even Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. <laughs> as much as I hate to say it, we're sheep. <laughs> and isn't it amazing how we follow after one another? <laughs> now, when I grew up, we had, my dad had suffics. And I declare, they're the most fence-crawlingest things you've ever seen. Maybe I'm wrong, but they just seem a little more belligerent. They just, they do what they want anytime they wanted, however they wanted. And we had this little field on the river, and uh, it was very lush. And invariably, every single early morning at the break of dawn, I don't know who the leader was because they were all black-faced. And they would slide through three or four fences to get in there, and, you know, and it was dangerous. It was dangerous. Because you could blow it easily. You see, a pastor's job or an elder's job, now all of those are the same word, bishop, elder. Uh, what's the other one? Pastor, elder, bishop. The, all three of those are the same, mean the same thing. Pastor means shepherd. That's really what the word means. Now me, even though I had not signed up to be a shepherd of blackface sheep, it was still knowing it was in their best interest that I go get them out of that field because they may not ever leave the field in the 
condition that they were going to be if they stayed in that field, right? It's called bloat, dead. You see, shepherds have two main missions with the flock, feed and lead. In the, even in this last week, now we're going to move to cows for a moment, but one of the things that 35 or 40 below, whatever it was, and, and Harrison, one of the guys there, had 51 below on their, temp, on their thermometer. Good grief, right? Okay. What would be very important to a cow at 51 below? Making sure she has her nutritional needs met, right? That's what sheep, they need to have their needs met, food-wise. I remember how the church started. The apostles, they committed themselves to what? The Bible, teaching, and prayer. Teaching the Bible and prayer. Leaders of a flock, leaders of a family, to lead them in the Word of God. Feeding the flock. Taking care of them. And also, there's another part of that is watching and guarding. Because there's a whole lot of things. Now, this is where a sheep is so vulnerable. Where, where, I grew, where we had sheep, we had a lot of coyotes. Lots of them. And sheep don't last long in coyotes, right? Or, or dogs, for that matter, you know, running with dogs. And there's lots of stories we could tell there. But the point of the matter is, a sheep left by him or herself without knowing the dangers, very, very critical. That's where I'm afraid some of the church in the United States of America, when you consider, especially Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus is speaking to the churches, is they did not protect their sheep. In fact, the church of Ephesus today, it's not there. It's not there. It's gone. And I'm convinced it would have had to be with either feeding or guarding the sheep. What are we doing to guard those of which we're leading? Are we careful? What do we feed them? It should be out of the Word of God. Even Jesus, you know, in that chapter in... Uh, in fact, uh, there's just lots of things flowing through my mind. Let's, let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. That's the closest. Hebrews chapter 13. And let's take a look at verse 20. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. We've used it as a benediction in many cases. But look at, look at the description of this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13. And Hebrews is a powerful book. Now the God of peace, verse 20, chapter 13, that brought again from the dead our, our Lord Jesus. Now see, how, where did Jesus? He was, he was brought from the dead from who? God, God, a God of peace. That great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. He's the shepherd of the sheep. Now, you remember Peter Peter, here's a guy, you talk about falling, falling down, looking stupid. This is the guy that this night, as they're gathered around for the Last Supper, right? He says, oh, I'll go to the end. I'm, I'm going to go. I'll, I'm, I'm going with you to the death. And Jesus said, uh, by the way, Sonny, when the cock crows the second time, you will have denied me three times. You know, I could just, oh, never, 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 man, never. Guess what happened? What happened? And then I just loved Jesus just throwing these little tidbits of grace out there. John and Peter run to the, to the tomb on that resurrection morning. And Jesus says to one of the gals, Martha, he said, or Mary, he says, tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. Don't let Peter forget that I still, isn't that great? Isn't that fantastic? It would be just like, you know, when Larry takes a trip and falls down and, oh, and tell Larry that I still love him. 
It would be the same. But now they have this meeting. And I imagine, what would Peter be thinking about? It's kind of like this little kid that, you know, the mother probably said, you wait till your dad gets home. <laughs> Did you have a family like that? My mom usually took care of business right away. And then when dad came home, I got it again, right? That's how it works. But at any rate, you wait till your father gets home. And there would have been something of that, that residing thought process for Peter. What's Jesus, what's Jesus going to say? Wouldn't it be broken? Wouldn't you be embarrassed? I denied, and now he's alive. He came back to life, which I'm, I'm, is fantastic, but it's not the same. And Jesus has that meeting. What's he going to tell him? Let's go to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. The important stuff's going to come right out. John 21. John 21, and we'll look at verses 15. There's a lot more there, but let's just dive in. So when they had dined, in other words, Jesus had caught the fish, so to speak, and uh, he cooked them, and they're eating, and so here we go. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou more lovest me more than these. Oh boy, here we go. Can you imagine Peter? Oh no, here it is. This is the, oh boy, I'm going to get it now. And he said unto him, yes, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, what did he say? Feed, feed my lambs. That's your job, Peter. Feed the sheep. Feed. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He said unto him, yes, Lord, you know that I love thee. He said unto him, feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter is grieved now, because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. Did you see the humility now? It's not like, you know I love you. It wasn't like that, was it? You know my heart. You know, you know, you know I want to love you. And what did he say again? Feed my sheep. You know, he says to every parent that's trusted Christ as Savior, to every church leader, whether it's a Sunday school teacher, whether it's a pastor, whatever it is, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Critical. Let's go to James, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. James chapter 4. We're going to pick up the speed here a little bit. James chapter 4. I want to see how this ties in, again, to personal purity. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 of James, a half-brother of, of Jesus, wrote this book, Practical, Rubber Meeting the Road. When, from whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your own lusts that war is in your members? You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have. You cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. What does that sound like? It sounds like the world, doesn't it? At every level. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss. If you ask that you may consume it upon your lust, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God is resisting the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Now here's its cure. Here's worldliness' cure. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit. Come right alongside of God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh, draw close to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and, did you see the word? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's double-minded? 
to try to have the world and Christ in the same. You can't do that. You cannot serve God in mammon or money. Uh, how many pastors today are more impressed with the money? Uh, you get on a television screen and you start to watch the televangelist, which actually I can't even watch much of it. Someone that's going to try to sell me a handkerchief that I can put for a thousand bucks. No, I'm done. I'm there. That's not of God. That's a false teacher. Purify your hearts. Purify. Same word. Pony up to God. But let's go back to Ephesians now, chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 5. Powerful statement. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Uh, was actually verse 24. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, wow, there's a lot there. So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Husbands, if you're here, you have an example that is beyond belief, and it's Jesus Christ. That's our example. He gave his life for the church. And it says that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, nor any such thing, but that it should be holy, pure, and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord of the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Wow. If there's a verse, I spoke of it. Verse 33, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, husband, love your wife, and the wife that she reverence her husband. Love and respect in a marriage relationship is key and foremost of everything. That verse right there summarizes everything that needs to happen. If a husband loves his wife so that she knows there's no one else in the world, there's nothing else in the world that he loves more you won't make her closer to you. And if she respects her husband, respect is the right word. I was, I was counseling a young couple, and I said, if you, I said to, the, to the guy, I said, if you can love, and I said names, but I'll keep those out. If you can love her like that, she's yours. And I said, if you can respect him, I, I want to love him. See, you, you see? I said, the best way for you to love him is to respect him. Because if a wife respects her husband as no one else deserves any more respect than that man, you couldn't break those two apart for nothing. And you know what Satan's trying to do all the time? Just exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 3. The consequences that were laid out because of sin. That relationship between husband and wife has always been a challenge. For who's number one? Digging, driving, out. Look at, look at our commercials on television today. The husband is the dumbest person in the room. He knows nothing. Correct? Every time you watch it all, all day long. He's the dumb one in the room out of a family. Who do you think's behind that? Satan. Now, I didn't, I'm not here to say that the husband's the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> but he is, in fact, the one that God has placed in the, in the authority of the family. That's the way God did it. And when we do it that way, it works. It works. Church eldership, church leadership, 
blameless. Isn't that fantastic? Just think about that just in the gym. I've got to, I got to, I got to, I got to, there's so much here, but we got to, I got one more thing we got. Let's go back, let's go back to our text. We'll finish, promise. So reviewing, uh-oh, I got nothing to write down with. Let's try it. You're going to tell me, what was the first thing we're supposed, what was Paul's first thing? Teach, and how do we teach? First of all, examine yourself, right? Examine yourself. We spent a good share of today on that. Number two. Now I've got, see, I've got you at bay. Feed the flock, right? Feed and lead. How do you do that? Absolutely. Deal with God's word. Study God's word. Teach God's word. God's word and pray. We'll see that in a moment. That's your text. Let's dig in. I'm in Ephesians. Let's go back to Acts chapter 20. And let's keep moving. Verse 28. Take heed there unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath given you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in. Those are, that's a, when, when I hear the word wolf, it doesn't conjure up nice things. Coming from the outside, entering in among you, not sparing the flock. They will take what they want. But look at this, also verse 30. Also of your own selves, coming from within, shall men arise speaking for perverse. What's perverse things? What is a perverse thing? Evil? Incorrect? Unnatural? It would be to distort or twist if you, when someone says twist the truth, or the word that we use at a political level is to spin, the spin, right? That's distortion. That's making it fit your context. Uh, in a false teaching world, that's a lie. A lie. To draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch. We talked about watching. And remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Watching and warning Feeding and leading. And now, just think of that. Just those four things. Feed, lead, watch, warn. Isn't that really what the church is all about? Leadership? It's a responsibility? Even within a family. Verse 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God. In other words, I'm, let, I'm leaving you to God. I'm praying to God for you and to the word of his grace in the word of God, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Now he talks about himself. He's free from self-interest. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you know yourselves that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now I have a question. Now, do you have the red letter edition, which I'm not for or against, but I have it. I, and that's red, right? Okay. Can you tell me where else that's at in the, in the Gospels? Don't bother looking. It's not there. It's not there. Did you know that? It's not there. This would have been an oral tradition that would have been passed down through, but nonetheless, 
still got inspired. Luke wrote it down as being Christ's words. Now, you say, ooh, that's a little weird. Is that okay? Let's go to John chapter 20, verse 31 for a moment. John chapter 20, verse 31. See, now parents have used that on children at Christmas time, isn't it? It's better to give than to receive, right? But you never know where to find it. Well, it's there in Acts chapter 20. But John chapter 20, verse 31, this is really an interesting thing. Uh, verse 30, we'll start there. And many other signs, this is John chapter 20. I'm sorry, did I say 21? I meant 20. 20, verse 30. 20, 30. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And, yeah, verse, it was verse 30. Can you imagine all of the other things that he said that aren't written in the books? Well, there's one of them in Acts chapter 20. It is better to give than to receive. Or it's more blessed to give than to receive. When he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should not see his face anymore. And they accompanied him unto the ship. That's one thing we have to say about Paul. He was not, how, how, should, how do I want to say this? Um, there was nothing in any material goods, money, possessions, whatever it was, there was never any love that he had there. His, characterized, his love is characterized by his love for God. He was devoted fully to him. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I have it written in my notes. Let me go there real quick. Hebrews 13, 5. Oh, it's in the sense of covetousness. Yeah. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Paul was truly uncovetous. Think of the last, the last commandment we have is thou shalt not covet. That's the one commandment if you actually break, you probably will break the rest of them to, to do what you covet, right? Every single one is broken if you actually covet. In other words, if you felt you've made the first nine, you probably will fail on number 10. So what are we saying here? Church leadership, the dynamics of it. One thing I would have to say, are you striving to be blameless? You should be. And I know it's not, you know, not everyone can be an elder in a church. I don't even, I'm not even concerned about that today. He was speaking to elders. He said, don't be blameless. He wrote it in the scriptures. Anywhere we are walking in this world as a Christian, let's seek to be blameless. Are we attempting, are we focusing on teaching from the Word of God? Are we praying at a level that is, speaks of devotion to those that need Christ? I see Paul pouring at his heart to these elders. If he would have been right here today, that same, the same sense of devotion would be right here for us to, to soak in. He zeroed in on what was really important. It was like he was being Jesus again. Remember several weeks ago he said, Who will we, who's going to be Jesus? Paul was Jesus to the church at Ephesus and to us ultimately through those letters he wrote. Let's close with Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. Now I've given you some reading assignments. Here's a life assignment. Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. And the therefore is the previous 11 chapters. 
by the mercies of God that you present your bodies. That's the same word as yielding in Romans chapter 6. Yield yourself. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You want to become a leader? Present yourself to God. You want the direction of your family to go in God's way? Present yourself to God. Now, if you do nothing, if you just sort of like hang out, which is what Satan wants the world to do, then that's kind of the message to young people. Just have fun. Just relax. Just take it as it comes. No big deal. Whatever. Guess what happens? You're pretty well shaped into the world. You're conformed to the world. And you might be a Christian inside, but the world can't even tell you are. Isn't that true? (laughs) Make sure that there's enough evidence to convict you in a court of law that you are a Christian by your actions. Be transferred by the renewing of your mind. That's why Paul took every one of his epistles, every one of his letters. He always said, let's think right before you can live right. Oftentimes we say to do something without making sure we think about something. Guarding your hearts. Proverbs chapter 4. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? Questions, comments? Is there a chance? Do we have a chance? <laughs> How does this work in our world? Is this possible or is this just second century Christianity and we can't do this anymore? God's old. It's all yielding, isn't it? Presenting. Yeah, presenting. And, and yield, see, this was helpful for me today. I didn't, yielding to me was just that. You know, you submit, you. But if you look that word up, I looked it up in the concordance in, my, in, the, in the Greek, it's to be a, beside of. What better place to be with God than beside him, right? Beside him. You're either beside sin, that's pretty, right? It's walking by the bars, it's walking by, right? Isn't that what happens? Or be beside God, yielding. Absolutely. Now, there are those that are just kind of, you know, pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, whatever that looks like. I don't know what that looks like, actually. Have you ever tried to do that? It doesn't work. But it's, it's, a, it's a cliche that actually literally you're doing it yourself. You know how effective that is? It doesn't work at all. Sin's bigger than you are. It'll take you out and make you think you're in charge. That's the worst thing about sin is it lets you think you can do it or not do it. Someone that gets say, well, I don't want to give up my sin. You couldn't give it up. That's the bottom line, right? That's the, that's the treachery of sin. But yeah, letting God do the work within you, that's the key. That's really the key, getting alongside of God. Now, there are those that say that's just old, it's archaic, it's too old. When's the last time the truth got too old to cease being truth? What makes truth cease being truth? That's a good question. I would like to ask that. What do you mean the Bible's too old? How old does truth become until it's too old and we can't trust it as truth anymore? Is it 1,000 years old? Is that 500 years old? Is that 200 years old? It looks like the Constitution is over 200 years old, so we can't trust it anymore, right? Is truth like that? Let's hope not. Let's hope not. In the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, that's truth. It sets out the whole thing, gets the foundation perfectly laid out.
never too old. That's right. Truth never gets too old to remain to be truth. And Satan constantly, he's doing it more than he's ever done, probably because we have more communication devices than we've ever had. I don't know, is there, any, is there room for any more? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> is it, but there will be something, right? There's something. But he will continue to utilize the power of untruth. That's the false teachers. We didn't get into that very deeply today. In other words, watching and warning. That was what Paul was effectively so very, he, he would literally weep, bring to tears in the sense of protecting those saints in Ephesus. And any other church, literally. False teachers. Jude, we didn't go there. We didn't go to the little book of Jude. It's full. That, that whole letter was written about false teachers. Uh, do you mind? Should we, can we do one more thing? This fits today. This literally fits today. Let's go to 2 Timothy for a moment. All right. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3. Last letter that Paul wrote, at least that we have the record of. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And let's just have a look. This know also, verse 1, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Uh-huh. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. No. Covetous. No. Boasters. No. Proud. Does it sound like last days? Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Unholy. Without natural affection. Truce breakers. False accusers. Incontinent. Fierce. Despisers of those that are good. Despisers of those that are good. Despisers of those that are good. One more time. Despisers of those that are good. That's what our government is doing today. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captives, silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, false teaching, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Does that not sound like the 2024 in which you're engaged in living? Whew. <laughs> That's apostasy. That's false teaching at its height. We are now the recipients in the United States of America, probably at a level that we have not ever seen here. Now, I'm not going to say elsewhere in the Bible. You can find lots of other places. We've always fallen over the I'm saying we as humans, right? Adam and Eve. I mean, look at the lie they, they bought. Genesis 3. Oh, my goodness. How could you be walking with God and then you succumb to that? But here we are. Here we are, 2024. The truth is just as truthful today. That passage of Scripture, when it was written, is just as right on as it is then as it is today. When we present ourselves, when we walk alongside of God, we can have the same personal purity that's required of us that, that um, Paul is speaking about to literally be in a position of leadership. Husbands, if you're here today as a family, get close to God. The rest of your family will get close as an example of that. In the church, the elders, the pastors... And I'm telling you what, I don't feel qualified to even give this message today as your pastor. I don't feel qualified. I really don't. But keep praying for me. Keep asking that God would keep me closer to him, closer to him, closer to him, closer to him. Because the closer I am to him, the better the message is for you. That's how it works. And then let's reach out to those that don't know Jesus Christ. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Let's pray. Father God. Thank you for the day. Thank you for these that are here today and the words that you've given from the word. It is overwhelming to think of all the things going on, 
all of the ways that we fail, we come short. But Father, Jesus Christ died for sin. He broke the power of sin. We are no longer slaves to it. Who will we yield to? Father, if there's someone hearing my voice that does not know Jesus Christ personally, that they have seen through the power of the Holy Spirit, potentially, hopefully, that they are a slave to sin. They can't stop sinning. Sinning owns them. They are dead in trespasses and sins, and there's nothing they can do about it. Even though that thought itself is painful and overwhelming and almost sadistic, it's the best place to start. Because until you realize that you can't do anything about it and there's no way for you to solve it, then you won't need a Savior. But Jesus Christ did, in fact, die to be your Savior. When you reach out by faith, trusting Him, giving your whole being, laying it out there and saying, I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. Through the power of Jesus Christ, I will repent to turn around and go the other way. By your power, Jesus Christ, I will become what you want me to be. Fellow Christian, as you're here today, and the magnitude and the weight of leadership has no doubt been heavy. Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, which lives in you, is the power that will lift you up, is the power that literally will take you to a level of where your gifts can be utilized. Do not, do not let the enemy keep you down. Get up, confess your sin, get close to God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, and the world will be changed one person at a time. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for his aggressiveness in doing what he did for the church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.